Hey guys, before we begin, we just wanted to let you guys know to follow us on Spotify and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at CrimeTalkTZ and that's where we will be doing all of the updates for our podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Crime Talk with TNZ. I'm Rhiannon Torino. And I am Elizabeth Zambrano. Alright, for this episode, we're going to talk about a man who not only committed murder in our home state of Florida, but throughout the U.S. from 1970 to 2005. Today we're going to talk about serial killer Samuel Little. So before we get into the known victims and the possible victims, because there is quite a few... I want to dive a little into his background and criminal history. He was born in Georgia in 1940 during one of his mother's prison stays. He has described his mother as a lady of the night. Soon after he was born, he was taken in by his grandmother who lived in Ohio. He spent some of his youth and young adulthood boxing and was really good at knockout punches, which he used on his victims later on. He said that in an interview he could literally just one punch knock a girl out during high school he had problems with discipline and achievement and in 1956 at age 16 he was arrested for breaking and entering then in 1961 he was arrested and sentenced to three years in prison for breaking into a furniture store after leaving ohio he made a life of committing crime by 1975 he had been arrested 26 times in 11 states that is a lot Do you know what some of the charges were? Charges include burglary, breaking and entering, assault and battery, assault with intent to rob, assault with firearm, armed robbery, assault on a police officer, solicitation of prostitution, DUI, shoplifting, theft, grand theft, possession of marijuana, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, and resisting arrest. Some of these, as it is, are pretty serious crimes. I'm surprised he didn't spend any significant time in jail already. It seems like he was constantly either falling through the cracks or, like, just getting really short stints. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about some of the victims that we know of. In September 1976, Little was arrested in Sunset Hills, Missouri, for the rape, assault with great bodily injury, and robbery of Pamela K. Smith. She escaped his car half-naked, running with her hands bound behind her to strangers' houses, begging for help. Little had strangled, bitten, beaten, and sodomized her. He was convicted of assault with attempt to ravish and served just three months. Oh, my God. Wait, didn't he spend three years in jail for breaking and entering into that furniture store? And this time he only got three months for attacking that poor woman? That's crazy. Oh, I agree. Now, six years later, in September 1982... 26-year-old Patricia Mount's body is found in Alachua County, Florida, along the side of US-27. She was nude, strangled, and raped. Patricia was the resident of Sunland Training Center, a facility for developmentally disabled. Apparently, she had the IQ of 40. Witnesses identified Little as the last person seen with Patricia. To clarify, what is the average IQ? An IQ between 90 and 110 is considered average, over 120 is superior, and roughly 68% of the population has an IQ between 85 and 115. So sadly, maybe he realized that she was a little bit below average and he used that to his advantage. Possibly. So Little and Mount were reportedly seen at a lounge dancing together and then left together. 
There were hairs found on her body that were similar to Little's. He was tried, but due to lack of evidence, he was acquitted after a jury deliberated for less than half an hour. Hair evidence is only definitive if there's DNA, right? Right. So at one point, hair comparison was accepted as main evidence in court. The hair in question would be examined microscopically, and the markings found could then be compared to that of a known subject. Nowadays, however, many cases where microscopic hair analysis was the main source of evidence are being overturned due to DNA. Hairs can still be important to a case today, but primarily when a root is still attached, since that's where the DNA will be taken from. Okay, that makes sense. A month after all of this with Patricia Mount, the body of 22-year-old Melinda LaPree was found strangled in a cemetery near Pascagoula, Mississippi. She was a prostitute and had been missing for three weeks before her body was found by the cemetery groundskeeper. Witnesses said they saw Melinda get into a brown pinto station wagon Little was driving. Throughout the investigation, there were two prostitutes that were interviewed, Hilda Nelson and Layla McLean. Each of them said Little had assaulted them and strangled each of them. Hilda had actually reported the crime prior to this. McLean was going to, but when she saw that there really wasn't an investigation going on with Hilda's case, she decided not to. They each provided eyewitness identification of Little. Little was arrested for Melinda's murder, but the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. I mean, it makes sense why Layla didn't want to report it, considering he got away. And second, nothing was done about her friend Hilda's. Yeah, so obviously that has to be discouraging for a woman that was attacked. Which leads us to our next crime two years later. In October 1984, San Diego police, the actual police, caught Little beating and strangling Tanya Jackson in the back of a Thunderbird. He was charged with rape and assault with great bodily injury. While the police had him in custody, they realized that he was also part of the attack on Lori Barros back in September. Lori survived by playing dead after Little strangled her and then left her on the side of the road. So they tried the cases together and added a false imprisonment charge. Good on her for getting away. It sucks that she was caught in that situation, but playing dead literally saved her life. Please tell me he got charged this time. He did. And... He pled guilty of the crimes and was sentenced to four years in prison, but only served a year and a half before being paroled. Mm. How did he get away with it for so long? They had him multiple times. I know. I read that he had no address, no registered car, no credit card, and he chose people that he felt society wouldn't care about. But luckily, even though he spent a short time in prison, with this conviction, they got his DNA. Finally. Unfortunately, that conviction could not have prevented what was going to happen to the next victim. In 1994, 38-year-old Denise Brothers lived in Odessa, Texas, where she was murdered. She had two sons who were 9 and 14 years old and lived with their grandparents. See, Denise was having a hard time. She was a heroin addict and a prostitute. She lived in a crappy motel. A few days before her murder, her sons had gone to visit her. She sent them on an errand to get a loaf of bread and some cigarettes, and when they returned, there was no answer at the door. And unfortunately, that would be the last day that they saw her alive. Wow. On the day of her murder, Little spotted Denise, who was walking to her pimp's motel, which was just as crappy as hers. He offered her a ride and bought a bunch of crack and heroin for Denise and her pimp. The three of them got high together, and then the pimp left her to deal with Little. He and Denise pulled into an alley where he grabbed her by the throat, threw her in the back seat, and strangled her. 
In an interview, he said that he didn't just straight up strangle his victims. He liked to take his time. He took his time with Denise, unfortunately. He allowed her to gain consciousness many times before finally taking her life, which just horrifies me. It's just torture. Not only did he do that to poor Denise, but he He did did that to to all, pretty much all of them. Wow. Three weeks later, on February 2nd, her body was found in a vacant lot. A truck driver had found her body and called the police. Detective Sergeant Snow Robertson recognized her as she had had some run-ins in the law in the past. From the collected vaginal swab, Denise's pimp and another man were identified as suspects. Both men denied being involved. Was the other man identified as Little? No, and the detective knew he had more investigating to do because he believed both men. He questioned every prostitute, tried finding as many of Denise's associates as possible, but kept hitting a dead end. And her pimp didn't say anything or describe Little as the last person that he saw with her? Not from what I found. Maybe he was too out of it to remember Little. But with no leads, Robertson spent many hours filling out forms on his homicide cases and mailing them to VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. What is VICAP exactly? Is this anything like CODIS? VICAP is where detectives put information so that there's a database of compiled information on sexual assault cases, solved and unsolved homicides, missing persons, and unidentified persons where foul plays suspected. While CODIS, Combined DNA Index System, is a database of DNA profiles that the FBI oversees and police departments use for investigative leads. So VICAP is where detectives input the biographical information and CODIS is where forensic scientists input their DNA info. Yes. Detective Robinson put his cases into VICAP hoping there would be something to link them, hoping some lead would come so he could catch Denise's killer. Which brings us to our next detective that used VICAP also. Starting in 2012, LA detective Mitzi Roberts was trying to put together what she could of Sam Little. She was working in the cold case special section, screening DNA evidence from cases that had been deemed lost causes. In April, of the hundreds of cases screened through the federal database, there was a case-to-case DNA match, the cases of 1989 murders of Audrey Nelson and Guadalupe Apodaca were linked to Little. Yeah, so they got him. That's their man. Well, it's a start. Finding DNA on a victim means that person was with the victim at some point, but doesn't automatically mean that person was the murderer, especially when in this case, both women had multiple DNA profiles present. DNA doesn't give you a timestamp. But hopefully the DNA found was enough for them to connect the dots. Well, it definitely got them looking into him, and that's exactly what they did. Roberts and her partner, Amador, began really digging into him. They found few aliases such as Samuel McDaniel, Samuel McDale, Willie Mae Clifton, and Willie Lewis. They ran rap sheets, arrest records, pulled prison packages and vehicle records, the whole nine yards. No wonder it was so hard to find him. Not only did he have multiple identities, but remember, he didn't even have a registered car or credit card. Things that can be used to locate you that a typical person has, he lacked. Yeah, uh, he didn't have anything. Roberts was able to locate a 2007 narcotics warrant, and the DA agreed to extradite Little if only he could be found. With the help of a lead from Robbery Homicide Division detectives, they were able to pinpoint his last known location in Louisville, Kentucky. Wait, so how did they achieve that? 
they found a prepaid Walmart card that little social security payments were being deposited into. Well, at least there was finally one thing to get them to find him, and they finally had a little bit of a paper trail. A little bit. Something. The U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force located Little at Wayside Christian Mission in Louisville and arrested him. He was then extradited to California and sat in the jail, refusing to talk. Well, yeah, he probably thought, oh, they just got me on drugs, I'll be out soon, and he thought he was going to keep getting away with all his crimes. I mean, it happened most of his life. But that was until November came, and another hit of his DNA came up on the 1987 cold case of Carol Alford who had been found in an alley strangled. His DNA was found on her bra and under her fingernails. With this, on January 2013, Assistant District Attorney Beth Silverman charged Little on three counts of murder. The trial began on September 2nd, 2014, after weeks of testimony from criminalists, expert witnesses, pathologists, police officers, and living victims. A jury convicted Little on three counts of first-degree murder, which resulted in three consecutive life sentences. Oh, of the living witnesses were Nelson and McLean, who were also witnesses in Melinda's murder trial. I think it's amazing that they had the courage to testify and face him a second time after Melinda's trial had gone nowhere. I mean, they basically didn't, they weren't heard, and they still felt confident enough to face this man. I agree. And I also found it a little funny that after he was convicted and they were taking him out of the courtroom, he purposely looked right at Detective Roberts and waved at her. He was so smug, and I think it's also great that a woman detective was part of ultimately finding him and bringing him down and the person that prosecuted was a DA and she was also a very strong, smart woman. I agree. He was taken down by women, just like all the women he took down. That's a little bit of poetic justice, if you ask me. So obviously there's more to this. Did he ever start talking? Do we know more now? So far, he has described 90 killings, 39 of which have been confirmed by available evidence. If the numbers of confirmed murders continue to go up, he could be known as the most prolific killer in U.S. history. Right now, that standing belongs to the Green River Killer, who was convicted of 49 murders and described 20 others. Little's been drawing his victims, so hopefully with that, people will come forward and identify some of those women. The FBI is urging anyone with information to contact VICAP at 800-634-4097. We will put a link in our Instagram and Twitter of those drawings as well as that number. We'd like to take this time to acknowledge the women who had their lives cut short due to Little. Some of the 39 that have been confirmed are Martha Cunningham, killed in 1975 in Tennessee. Julia Critchfield, killed in 1978 in Mississippi. Evelyn Weston in South Carolina of the same year. Brenda Alexander, who was killed in Alabama in 1979. Linda Sue Boards of Kentucky, killed in 1981. Rosie Hill, who was killed in 1982 in Marion County, Florida. Ferdonia Smith, also killed in 1982 in Georgia. Dorothy Richards in Louisiana, Daisy McGuire, who was killed in 1996 in Louisiana, Nancy Carroll Stevens, who was killed in 2005 in Mississippi, and Melissa Thomas, who was killed in 1996. I know that we only scratched the surface of Little's crimes. There will be more to come as he continues to confess and law enforcement confirm the crimes. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to our episode of Crime Talk with TNZ. 
We will have new stories for you every week. And thank you for listening to our podcast. I know that there are a lot of crime podcasts to choose from out there. Crime Talk with TNC is hosted by Rihanna Torino, co-hosted by Elizabeth Sombrano. Our music is by Elizabeth Sombrano and our logo is by Alexander Zust.